If you've listened to the podcast previously, you know that I like talking about the area around a crime, talking about the community that was impacted. And this week's episode is no different, except that this crime, this murder, it happened to one of my neighbors. Now, I didn't know it at the time. Few people knew about this murder at the time. For whatever reason, this case, this brutal slang, it didn't get much coverage, if any, in the local press. Gail Webster died a violent death at the hands of an unknown intruder. If you live in the Detroit area, Somerset Mall is the fancy mall, the upscale mall, the place to shop if you are of a certain financial set. Of course, the mall is filled with a variety of stores. Many you'd find at shopping centers across the country, but it's also home to a set of exclusive retail offerings. Places like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus, and Tiffany, among others. The mall expanded sometime in the late 1990s to two campuses, the original on the south side of Big Beaver Road and the newer mall over on the north side. The two malls are connected by a skywalk that arches over the road. When I was a child, at the time this story is set, there was only one Somerset Mall, and it was on the south side of Big Beaver, anchored by Saks Fifth Avenue and Bonwit Teller. My mother and grandmother were partial to the jeweler in the mall, Charles Warren, and I remember many visits to that store and others with stops in the mall for lunch or a treat. And in 1978, we lived within walking distance of the mall, in a two-bedroom apartment in the adjacent Somerset Apartments. Our unit was on Gulfview Drive. Gail Webster lived on the south side of the complex on Dorchester. Her residence was closer to Maple Road and the Perry Drugstore. Our apartment was near Somerset Inn and the Somerset Movie Theater. Listeners, come with me to a cold October night in 1978 when Gail Webster, an unlikely victim, meets a violent end. Friday, October 27, 1978. Gail worked all day. She was the day shift manager at the Suzy Q restaurant on Woodward Avenue. And I need to stop here and talk about Suzy Q. It was a very popular family restaurant, located on the east side of Woodward, north of 12 Mile Road, not too far from the Vic Tanny. If you lived in the area and are of a certain age, this is bringing back memories. If this is before your time, ask an older friend or relative. They'll remember Susie Q. As day shift manager, Gail handled day-to-day operations, but also scheduling and hiring. She set up work schedules for employees, not just at the Woodward location, but Susie Q was a fledgling chain of restaurants. I believe she also scheduled for another location as well. But no one had an issue with Gail. Not an issue like that, anyway. Just typical supervisor-employee tensions, but nothing concerning. Back in 1975, Gail filed for divorce from her husband, Raymond Webster. He'd been fighting a losing battle with alcoholism, and, frankly, Gail was tired of it. The couple had three girls, Wendy, Terry, and Cindy. And they were all grown up when the divorce came through. On her own in her mid-forties, Gail took an apartment at Somerset. It was known as a nice place to live. A safe place to live. The complex was home to multiple pools, 
tennis courts, and a golf course. And off topic, my dad loved playing golf at Somerset when we lived there. Somerset had a good reputation. It was a forward-thinking place to live. In fact, the complex was divided into a family section where kids were welcome, and there was an adult section for couples, singles, and retirees. There were even separate swimming pools for the adult and family sections of the complex. Gail's apartment, which appears to be identical to the unit that I called home, was a two-bedroom residence on the second floor of a four-unit building. She resided there with her daughter, Terry. And it was Terry who found her early that morning, just before 6 a.m. She'd been out with a boyfriend and came home to find her mother, her body sprawled at the end of the living room, her nightdress pulled up around her waist. Gail had been struck in the head repeatedly with an unknown object. She wasn't breathing and her head was surrounded by a pool of blood. Who would enter the apartment of Gail and Terry Webster only to beat Gail to death? Troy police examined the scene and did an informal interview of Terry. While her daughter was understandably upset, she wanted to help as much as possible. She told police that her mother was divorced, but was on decent terms with her ex-husband, that was Terry's father and the father of her sisters. Terry said that her mother didn't have any enemies, but she did relay to them a concerning story. Earlier in October, Terry went to a local bar, Piper's Alley, to meet a friend for drinks. Again, if you grew up in the area, ask family members of a certain generation. They will remember Piper's Alley as a cool, popular night spot, as well as a weekend brunch destination. When Terry got to the bar, she left her bag and apartment keys in the car. The next morning, Terry discovered that the keys to her apartment were missing. Also missing were a few checks from her checkbook. Whoever took these items from Terry's vehicle, they had a lot of information about Terry, where she lived, what kind of car she drove, and keys to access her home. This thief had a dangerous combination of items. When she came home and told her mother about what happened with her keys and checks being missing, Gail told Terry about a concerning incident. That evening, as she was sitting in the living room of the apartment, someone buzzed the apartment. When you buzz an apartment, it gives the occupant a chance to check and see who's there via intercom and the opportunity to release the outer door so the person can enter. But Gail disregarded the buzzer. She wasn't expecting anyone, and sometimes people buzzed the wrong apartment. And listeners, I can hear this buzzer in my head as I tell you the story. It was loud and abrasive and hard to miss. About a minute after the buzzer sounded, as Gail was in the living room, she realized that someone was trying to open the door to the apartment. Gail called out, Who is it? That's when Gail heard footsteps hurrying away. She went to the window and looked out, but didn't see anyone. Nor did she notice a vehicle. Not one departing, and there wasn't an unfamiliar car in the lot either. She told the story to her daughter, but there was not a police report filed about the incident. Gail did place a call to Somerset Apartments and request that the locks be changed on her unit. Now, at the time, at least how I remember the apartment being set up, is there was a lock to the doorknob and to the deadbolt, and you needed a key to access the building. So, two keys were needed to get to your apartment, one to enter the building itself, and then a second key to do the bolt and the doorknob. 
and it appears, if I'm reading the police file correctly, that Somerset changed one of the locks, the deadbolt, but they did not change the doorknob lock, meaning whoever stole Terry's keys, they still had her address and would be able to access the building and unlock one lock to her apartment. So police feel that this thief from Piper's Alley, the one who stole Terry's keys and checkbook, was a good candidate for the break-in and murder, but they didn't have much to go on. So they took a look at Raymond Webster, Gail's ex-husband. The couple had been married more than 20 years before the divorce, and on the day of the murder, Raymond joined his daughters at the funeral home, assisting and supporting them as they made plans to lay their mother to rest after the unexpected tragedy. When police interviewed Raymond, they described him as both distressed and cooperative. He told them that he worked at a party store on Woodward Avenue. And remember, in Michigan, party stores are convenience stores that sell things like liquor, beer, wine, tobacco, lottery tickets, and maybe even some home or grocery items. Raymond worked until the store closed at 11 p.m., then he went home to watch television. He went to sleep around 1 a.m. and woke up about 8 a.m. He learned what happened to Gail when his brother arrived at the home at 9 a.m. and broke the news. He told police that he and Gail were friendly after the divorce, and Raymond Webster willingly submitted to a polygraph and offered up his fingerprints to investigators. And a word about polygraphs. Now, today, we look at them as junk science, but in 1978, they were a big deal. So him agreeing to a polygraph voluntarily was a good sign that he was not involved in what happened to Gail Webster. Because Raymond did not look like a good candidate for committing this crime, investigators took a look at the other men in Gail's life. Gail, who was still attractive and fun at 48, and before you say, of course she was, 48 in 1978 is very different than 48 today. Just something to keep in mind. At the time of the murder, Gail was dating a man named Thomas. Thomas also lived at Somerset Apartments. His apartment was on Somerset Boulevard. And on the Friday night before the murder, he golfed the course at Somerset. With his game complete, he came home, cleaned up, had dinner. Then he watched television and went to sleep at his usual time. He learned of Gail's murder when her daughter called to inform him of what had happened. Thomas was also cooperative with investigators. He also submitted to an interview and a polygraph. He also allowed himself to be fingerprinted. He told investigators he wanted to help find the person responsible for her murder. And when I read this, that he'd gone golfing that day, I thought it was a little cold for golf. But on Friday, October 27th, the high was 55 degrees. And I know several dedicated golfers who would bundle up on a clear late fall day for one last go at the links. Investigators also looked at one of Gail's previous boyfriends. She had dated a man named Bob for several months, but she hadn't been seeing him for a while, maybe a year or so. Bob lived at home with his mother and was very active in the boating community. In fact, he spent a lot of time on the east side at the St. Clair Shores Yacht Club. Police looked at Bob, and I think that he was also cleared. And this left investigators in a pickle. The murder appeared to be personal. Gail was beaten about the face and head. Her nightgown was pulled up, leaving her exposed. There was no sign of sexual assault, and while the thieves from Piper's Alley looked like promising suspects, 
nothing had been stolen from Gail's apartment. Her purse, including her wallet, was untouched. The cash was still there. The apartment was not ransacked. And it appears that the killer brought the murder weapon with them to Somerset that night. As police try and nail down a time of death, one of Gail's neighbors, an older man who lived on the first floor, he was able to shed some light on the attack. And pay close attention to this because I find this exceptionally interesting. He said it was about 3.15 a.m. when he woke up needing to use the restroom. After doing his business, he struggled to fall back asleep. It was 3.30 a.m. when he heard the rear door of the building open, followed by the sound of footsteps heading up the stairs. In the minutes prior to that, remember he'd been laying in bed in the dark in the quiet of the middle of the night. He didn't hear a car, nor had he heard the jarring sound of a buzzer letting someone in the building. It was a few minutes, maybe 15 minutes later, that he did hear the buzzer, followed by the sound of heavy footsteps, perhaps belonging to a man, hurrying up the stairs. Minutes later, he heard those same heavy footsteps, slower now, descending the stairs. And about a minute later, he heard a car leave the lot. During these long middle-of-the-night minutes, he heard no conversation, no commotion. He told investigators he knew the sound of Gail's daughter's car, and this wasn't it. He said it didn't sound like the car driven by Thomas, either. He described the sound of the engine as, quote, raspy. This elderly neighbor, when he heard all of this, he was in his bedroom, which is at the back of the apartment building, near the parking lot. He was in a good position to hear anything that occurred in the parking lot in the quiet of the night. Unfortunately, in 1978, this gentleman was in his 70s, and he is no longer around to ask about the night of the murder. Because, listeners, I'm wondering, did he hear the arrival and departure of Gail's killer? Someone entered the apartment that 48-year-old Gail Webster shared with her daughter and beat Gail to death in the early morning hours of October 28, 1978. The killer or killers entered the apartment, possibly using keys stolen weeks earlier when Gail's daughter was frequenting a busy local night spot. Nothing was stolen, Gail's wallet was untouched, and it appears that the murder weapon, a blunt instrument, was brought to the scene. Gail was struck so hard that some of her teeth were knocked out. The carpet beneath her body was soaked in blood. In the kitchen sink, investigators found bloody towels where her killers stopped to clean themselves after murdering Gail. They also noted that there were blood smears on Gail's legs, as if the killer tried to clean her as well. And I'm telling you, they were not successful at cleaning her up. Gail's daughter Terry would tell police that when she arrived home, the deadbolt was not locked. Only the lock on the door handle. The killer had locked the door when they left, but didn't stop to secure the deadbolt. Remember, only one of those two locks was replaced. If Gail forgot to secure both locks before bed, it's possible that someone used the stolen keys to enter the building and the apartment. While Gail's former husband and former boyfriend were looked at, along with the man she was romantically involved with at the time of the murder, none of them looked like viable suspects, and all three were cooperative agreeing to interviews, polygraphs, and fingerprinting. I'm wondering about the maintenance team at Somerset Apartments. And I'm wondering if the people that were working on maintenance crews, housekeeping, landscaping, were they cleared? Were they looked at? 
I'd like to think that Troy Police did a thorough investigation, but I'm still curious about that aspect of the investigation. They've cleared her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, and ex-husband, so investigators went back to her employer, Susie Q. I mentioned earlier in the episode that Susie Q was a local chain of family-style restaurants. The Woodward Avenue location was especially popular on Fridays because they offered such amazing fish and chips dinners. I've also heard wonderful things about their chicken and coleslaw. Because they were located just a few blocks north of the Shrine of the Little Flower, a busy Catholic parish, they were also a popular after-church destination for families. Managing a busy place like the Suzy Q meant that Gail had unusual hours. She worked every weekend. Tuesday and Wednesday were her days off. Gail also interacted with a lot of people. In addition to patrons, she managed a large and varied lot of employees from waitstaff in front of house to kitchen helpers, busboys, cooks, and cleaners. Her work brought her in contact with literally hundreds of people every week. Investigators went to Susie Q to talk with her co-workers. Gail had worked at Susie Q for more than a decade. They started with Patricia, the assistant manager. She'd known Gail for years. She told police that Gail handled hiring, firing, and scheduling, and that Gail was well-liked by the Suzy Q team, and Patricia was not aware of any problems or concerns that Gail had. One of the things that jumped out at me as I read through the file on this case is that the people at Suzy Q, they all worked with Gail for years, as in more than a decade, and they all had nice things to say about Gail and they reported that while she had some normal co-worker tension with a couple of staff members, there was nothing concerning to report. Gail did not start out at Suzy Q as a manager. She initially hired on as a cashier, and through the years, via her hard work, friendliness, and reliability, she was promoted, eventually earning a spot as day shift manager. Her boss, he told investigators that Gail was a great employee, that she'd recently received a raise and he had never, not once, had he ever had a complaint about her. With her work situation looking like a dead end, police went back to the missing keys and checkbook. Remember, Terry, her daughter, was out the evening of October 2nd, first at a Woodward Avenue restaurant, Mavericks. Then she went over to Piper's Alley on Big Beaver in Troy. So they went through her evening again. Terry told them it was after 9 o'clock when she left Mavericks for Piper's Alley. Terry was alone. When she parked at the restaurant, she took a minute to get organized, possibly freshen her hair or her lipstick. She said that while she was in her car, she noticed two men arrive in a late-model Pontiac or Chevrolet. She said the car was blue-green in color with rusty rocker panels. She described the vehicle as, quote, fairly beat up. Now, the car that Terry was driving, it was a rental. So she tucked the rental keys in her pocket along with some cash and then locked the car before heading into the restaurant. She left her purse and house keys in the car. Later in the evening, she left Piper's Alley and went to her boyfriend's house. She didn't realize that the checks and the keys to her apartment were gone until the next morning when she arrived back at the apartment and couldn't get in. Terry told investigators that as she returned home, she saw what she thought was the same car from the night before at Piper's Alley, a blue-green Chevy or Pontiac with rust and dents. Interestingly, a sweep of the complex the morning of the murder revealed that a resident had seen a similar car, probably a Chevy in a blue-green shade, 
with Michigan plates racing out of the complex in the small hours. The description was close enough to what Terry told them that they decided to pursue the lead further, and Troy police took a risky step. They opted to have a doctor place Terry under hypnosis. And again, listeners, it's 1978. Polygraphs and hypnosis are looked at as serious, useful investigative tools. They were not viewed like we see them today. Terry met with a Dr. Rossi who was up in the Lansing area. The doctor intended to hypnotize Terry and see what could be gleaned about the car she'd seen at Piper's Alley and possibly again near her apartment. While under hypnosis, Terry was able to describe a blue-green Caprice Classic in rough condition. The vehicle had no shortage of scrapes, rust, and dents, including a line of rust along the bottoms of the doors. She said that the car had a yellow sticker on the windshield, and the letters in the red and white Michigan license plate were W-V-N. Now that yellow sticker makes me think of a Metro Park access sticker that we would stick in the corner of the windshield, but it could have also been a sticker for another apartment complex like a parking pass. She said that the driver of the vehicle was a white male with longish dark or black hair, wearing a black leather jacket or coat. She described the vehicle's muffler as loud, and that the left rear taillight was broken out. This gave police a little bit more to work with, but didn't name a suspect or give them anything concrete to follow up on. On November 2, 1978, the autopsy results came back. Gail died from blunt force trauma and blood loss. Standing only five foot one and weighing just over 100 pounds, Gail was no match for her killer. Dr. Robert Sillery performed the autopsy for the county, and he noted that Gail had defensive wounds on her hands and forearms as she tried to ward off the blows that killed her. The only sliver of good news was that despite her nightgown being pulled up, there was no sign of sexual assault. So who murdered Gail Webster and why? This is a woman with no known enemies. Her employer said that she'd worked for him for 15 years without a single complaint against her. Gail lived a low-risk lifestyle. She enjoyed her three daughters, her grandchildren, and she had a boyfriend with whom she had a stable relationship. In the spring of 1979, there was a flicker of hope in the case, and that's a strange thing to say. When a similar murder took place in Royal Oak, which was a neighboring community, Troy police were excited. Maybe this would give them a lead on the murder of Gail Webster. Troy police reached out to Royal Oak to see if there were any similarities between that case and the murder of Gail Webster, but unfortunately, there was no connection to be made. The killings, although they both took place at an apartment, were not related. Troy police have recently reopened the investigation into her murder. The case was last looked at in the mid-1990s. In August of 1995, Gail's body was exhumed so that her nails could be scraped, looking for traces of DNA evidence, perhaps a link to her killer. In the late 1990s, Troy police again looked at those closest to Gail, her children, her former husband, her boyfriend, her former boyfriend, but it did not lead them closer to answers. Gail Webster is buried at the Oakview Cemetery in Royal Oak, Michigan. You know, growing up in the area, I remember how popular the Suzy Q restaurant was. And even though it closed 36 years ago, back in 1984, there are so many people who look back at it fondly. Customers, employees, maybe someone who remembers Gail Webster. And maybe they also remember something about her brutal murder. 
If you have information in her case, please contact the Troy Police at 248-524-0777. You can leave an anonymous tip if you so choose. Audio production for Already Gone is provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.